Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latinx culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latinx minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. One of the core problems we have right now is that we have a political model that's building these coalition politics that is mixing in race with all of these other things and then essentially saying to one part of the America, we're going to raise the cost for you of agreeing with us to such a level that you cannot agree with us anymore. So I, I feel like I should say here that if we were able to correctly unpack all that's there, we will have solved American politics. <laughs> <laughs> Which I fully expect us to do. I mean, why not? The world has been waiting for this podcast. <laughs> Hello, welcome to Ezra on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My podcast today, my conversation today, is with David French, a senior writer at the National Review. The genesis of this discussion is interesting. Um, it comes out of the, the Sarah Jiang fracas, um, and, and if you were not paying attention to that, the New York Times editorial page hired this excellent tech journalist, Sarah Jiang. She worked at The Verge, which is a sister publication of Vox. Um, and had done amazing work over the years on everything from cryptocurrency to sexual harassment and trolling online. But there was a group of motivated folks, many of whom were pretty clearly not acting in good faith, who went through old tweets of hers and dug up a bunch that were making jokes about white people. And I, I say white people here with air quotes. It was operating in the idiom of, of certain Twitter communities uh, where that kind of thing is satire. It's a joking kind of mocking language. But if you are not read into that community and that world, it reads very differently. It reads as bigotry or reads as hatred or certainly reads as insulting. Anyway, I don't want to go through the whole of that backstory. You should search it. We have good explainers. I've written a bit on it on Box if you want to find out more. But in the aftermath, David French, who is a senior writer at the National Review, very, very thoughtful conservative writer, he wrote an interesting piece responding in part to some things I had said on a Weeds podcast about what he thought this was about. And I want to read a bit of it here. He wrote, Conservative white Americans look at urban multicultural liberalism and notice an important fact. Its white elite remains and continues to enjoy staggering amounts of power and privilege. So when that same white elite applauds the decline of white America, what conservatives often hear isn't a cheer for racial justice, 
but another salvo in our ongoing cultural grudge match, with a victor seeking to elevate black and brown voices while remaining on top themselves. His bigger argument, and he'll explain this, is that this is all part of a white culture war. It's not what we often think it is. It's part of something bigger, and it's part of something that is more complicated and that we don't always even know how to talk about. I asked him to come on the show to talk about this. I thought it'd be better than us writing columns back and forth at each other. I'm very grateful that he did. This is a tricky conversation about tricky issues in our politics and the way we talk about race and gender and identity and religion and power and class, who is on top and who is on bottom and why we can't even agree on on those questions. I really appreciate the spirit in which he came to this conversation, and I think it's a good one. I think it's a worthwhile one. I do want to note, you may have seen an essay he published in The Atlantic recently about having adopted a child of another race into his family and The way its approach to race and identity has made having a mixed-race family a different experience, what he's learned about America, what has made it harder than he thought it would be. It's a really, really interesting essay. has uh, kicked off a very interesting online discussion. I do recommend you check it out. If you're wondering why we don't talk about it here, the answer is simply that it came out after we recorded this podcast. Um, Otherwise, I would have loved to talk with him about it. But a lot of the issues he's grappling with in there are very much present here. So I think you all will enjoy this one quite a bit. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is David French. David French, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. So this conversation dates back a little bit to the, the Sarah Jiang fracas, but, but in the aftermath, you wrote a really fascinating piece saying that that conversation and a bunch of others we've been having are part of what you call the Great White Culture War. So, so tell me a bit about the Great White Culture War. I'm building on a concept from my colleague, Rayhan Slam, who uh, wrote a really interesting piece in The Atlantic in response to this same incident, where he said, and based on some of his own experiences, that what ends up happening are that there are individuals, for example, um, Asian-American individuals who are moving into, say, largely white spaces or elite white spaces, And they see that some of this rhetoric about white people is actually signaling differences from what he called, I believe the term he used was upper whites and lower whites. In other words, uh, a white elite versus a sort of white working class or white America from the sort of red regions of the country. And that what we had here was a pretty big cultural division between different parts of the white American community. And so when you began to hear things uh, like, say, at uh, elite educational institutions, like, say, Harvard, or you heard from elite quarters of government, from more progressive quarters of the country, that there's this celebration, for example, that the era of the white male is ending or white American governance is ending, and that we're heralding a new sort of multicultural, more multicultural, more diverse America, what a lot of Americans aren't hearing is that the white elite and the more progressive areas of the country are going to lose anything at all, that they're in fact going to retain all of their power, all of their privilege, and that the white folks and some of these more elite institutions who are celebrating the decline of white America never seem to lose their power, never seem to lose their privilege. And then what's happening and what's really going on here is a battle of cultural and values and tastes and manners in the white population more broadly, with one side winning and one side losing and one side sort of using, for example, the votes of African-American voters or Latino voters to accomplish its victory. But what was actually happening is one side's looking at another side and saying, we win, you lose, we sacrifice nothing, you sacrifice 
the values and culture that you've built. And so it looks less like a true celebration of multiculturalism and diversity and a lot more like one side of a old and very familiar cultural battle defeating the other side. So I I think this is really interesting and and, and challenging, and I want to try to pull apart a couple of the ideas in it. Sure. So it it seems to me that Raihan's point has a a big signaling component. He's saying that there is a kind of signaling happening with this very intense social justice rhetoric, which goes all the way sort of in in the way you're telling it from just – talking very positively about a more multicultural America or an America where, say, white votes are not dominant in presidential elections, all the way to some of the more extreme, what you would see as anti-white rhetoric, what other people argue is satirical rhetoric, but putting it aside, no matter what it is, it can have a, a signaling dimension, right, to say either I'm not like those other white people or it can say, you know, I am like this particular group of white people who understands or, you know, whatever. It's a, right. it's a woke signaling thing. Then there's this other question that, that I think you fuse to the Raihan point, which is about loss, which is, hey, look, there are all these people saying that they are on the side of a more multicultural America, and there are all these people, these sort of white liberals who are celebrating these changes and allying themselves with this social justice movement, but actually they're not giving up anything at all. This idea that, that power is going to shift – in reality, they just think it's going to shift more towards them or retain towards them and shift away from, you know, these yokels voting for, <laughs> right. for Donald Trump. Is that that fair that there are these two things sort of being considered? Right. I think that's fair. I think that's certainly fair. And I think it's when you see, say, white progressives saying, ugh, white people, <laughs> or you hear them saying, ugh, white people, or expressing disgust at white people. They're expressing disgust, not at white people, but at the white people they don't like. And it's kind of a funny phenomenon. I, you know, just a bit of my background, I, I grew up in rural Kentucky. I was born in Alabama, raised in Tennessee and Kentucky, uh, went to a small Christian college in Nashville, and then went to law school at Harvard. And I never in my life encountered so many white people hating white people <laughs> until I went to Harvard Law School. And it was a very strange phenomenon. And then it just sort of compounded and and built the older I got. I remember I served for a time at the faculty at Cornell Law School, and you would have these white progressive law professors just rolling their eyes in disgust at white people. And, And it was this very strange phenomenon because what seemed to me was happening is that they were rolling their eyes in disgust at conservative white people. And I began to not see some of the racial justice component of some of their disgust, not to say that they weren't legitimately outraged at racial injustice. They were legitimately outraged at racial injustice, but I wondered what that also had to do, say, with religious liberty, what that also had to do with disdain for evangelical Christian faith, or what that also had to do with the abortion issue, and was caught up in a much larger cultural stew and a much larger cultural distinction between different parts of this country and different cultures in this country. So so one of the things that I think is really true there is that we have these mega identities that are fusing together. Yeah. And so a lot of 
ideas and conflicts that one could look at separately are also fused to all these other ideas and conflicts. So you can look at just the racial justice component of it, but then you note, well, it also seems to be correlated with a view on reproductive choice, or it also seems to be correlated with a view on religious liberty or whatever else it may be. I think that's very true, and I want to put a pin in it to come back to it in a minute. So I want to talk about what is being signaled here. Because this is something I notice in this debate. There's a, a feeling that, that certain, clearly something is being signaled, but there's a lot of disagreement over what it is. <laughs> right. So one idea here is actually what's being signaled by, by some of this rhetoric is hatred of white people, right? This is something that, that, that you were just saying, that there's actually a loathing of white people. Maybe all white people, maybe some white people, maybe conservative white people, but some kind of real dislike for actual individual white people, which it's a form of bigotry in that case. One of the ways that I have tended to understand it and am familiar with these worlds in, in, in my own way is that a lot of folks believe, and I'm one of them, that America is a country with a very deep past of white supremacy and, and racism, and for that matter, patriarchy and sexism. And that one of the questions I think people face as they come to realize that, right, as they come to either buy into it from things they're reading or, or things they've seen or, or they go to college and they're, they're in a milieu that is talking about this a lot, is that there's a question of how do you signal, if you are a white person, that you see that and that you don't want to be part of that, right? That you don't want to wear that lineage in the same way. And so one of the things that I often think when I hear this, when I see people saying, you know, joking like kill all men when they're upset about something sexist that happened in society or or making jokes about uh, white people online Mm -hmm. is – and here we're talking about when white people do it, not when group people or or men do it, not when people of other groups do it because I think it is a different valence. But is that they're trying to say not that they hate other white people like them but that they recognize that there is this – dominant culture around them, a culture that they are in some ways part of and certainly have been fostered by, and that they're trying to signal some separation from it. That, that's how I read it usually. Right. And I would say that that would be the way the in-group to that particular mode of, of speaking, you know, the, the white people and, and others would interprets it. So in other words, um, and this is one of the interesting things about a podcast I listened to that uh, you and Jane and Dylan did. And you're talking about how Twitter is this really interesting medium where you're talking to everybody and an in-group at the same time. And I think that shorthand language about white people or, you know, sort of the the tweet version of eye-rolling disgust at white people has an in-group meaning, but then it also communicates meaning to people who are not in the in-group. And so one of the things that I think particularly, and I'm not talking about like, you know, Jane Doe who starts a Twitter account, uh, but Jane Doe who hopes to have a public voice needs to realize is that you cannot aim all of your communications to your in-group in a way that's understood in the in-group and escape accountability for the way the words read outside of the in-group as well. What's becoming increasingly clear is that words have different meanings in different groups. And so in the world you're talking about, if you're trying to communicate, I'm not part of this patriarchal power structure, I'm not part of this sexist, racist legacy of the United States, and I'm going to use this shorthand way of saying it, that communicates clearly within that in-group. To other people who are watching what you say or watching what others say, it basically says, I don't like white people. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, 
And then when you turn around and say, no, 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 that's not actually what it means, but you're looking at the words on the page and the words on the page say, I don't like white people. It's a very difficult conversation to have. And I think that that difficulty is exacerbated, but often it's not just sort of like offhand joking stuff white people like to harken back to the blog that you and and Jane and, and Dylan talked about. It's often gets far more acerbic than that and far more mocking and far more insulting. And then when it becomes more acerbic and mocking and insulting, it gets really difficult to say, oh, this is just sort of like in-group signaling that I'm not part of something bad from the past or part of the bad elements of American society in the present. Right. And and so uh, one thing I will say is here, I agree with this quite a bit. Um, I do want to note that I feel we've made a shift in what we're talking about that that I want to call out. So there's one question of what is the intent of this kind of language. Mm -hmm. And I I think the intent of this kind of language is is properly understood as an in-group intent, right? It's an intent in who you're saying it to at that moment. And look, like, honestly, if I could take all of, like, everybody in journalism and politics off of Twitter, I would probably (laughs) do it tomorrow. I really don't think it is a place that has made us into better versions of ourselves or made us into versions of ourselves that more people can hear. And there are a lot of bad dynamics there that that I would love us to talk about. But so I do think that there's a, a distinction between a world where people are adopting forms of in-group communication that are potentially even catastrophic when they move beyond that in-group because of the words on the page or the words on the page. And you're sitting here saying, no, 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 they don't mean what they look like they mean. They mean this right. other thing that if you were in my community, you'd know. But, you know, let's say that won't work. Like, we can, I think, stipulate that. And clearly it didn't, right? It created a lot of problems for people. But that's a different version than there actually being hatred behind the words. And one of the things that I think is interesting here is there's one, this question of, is there hatred or is there this kind of signaling, mocking, in-group communication thing happening? Because those are are, our different worlds. And then the other that I think you bring into this, that that I do want to bring into this part of the conversation, is this idea of this intra-white people jockeying Mm -hmm. that has questions of loss associated with it. Mm -hmm. The way Raihan looked at this was he said, he was saying from the perspective of an Asian American person, maybe you conform to this kind of language because you are trying to fit in with this elite group of white people, right? You, you want to go to Harvard or you want right. to work on the faculty at Cornell or whatever it might be. It's funny because you could actually look at it the other way, which I think flows from your analysis of the power dynamics. Maybe you're a, a young white person who sees cultural power and even political power in the long run and so on flowing to this more multicultural, diverse America. And now you are pledging allegiance to that. You are signaling you're part of this rising group. And maybe you don't see it about intra-white struggle, but the people who are not willing to do that and who do feel a loss of power, now they feel that, that they're losing allies, they're losing compatriots. And that's where a sense that something here is not on the level, that, that a new power coalition is being drawn up that doesn't quite make sense and you're going to be the loser from. That's where that comes from. And maybe it's not even completely wrong. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think this goes back to, and I think it's something I believe you said you wanted to put a pin in the discussion on, and that is the the tie, the increasing extent to which I think because of coalition politics, for example, um, because our politics has become more negatively polarized, uh, more tribal in many ways. The way in which the racial aspect of American politics is now increasingly tied into many other aspects as well. And so you might be a person, say, sitting in Tennessee, where I'm 
sitting right now, and you might say, um, okay, I am very concerned. So this would be sort of my profile. I'm very, very concerned with historical American injustices and enduring American injustice centered around race. I'm very, very concerned with the legacy in the existing reality of racism in the United States. I am also very concerned with religious liberty. I am also very much pro-life. I am also these other things. And so what you begin to see happening, and I think to an increasing level, the more politically you're involved, is you begin to realize that if you have that collection of traits and interests and concerns, that what begins to happen is you're starting to be pushed into one side or another. And one side says, I am really, really interested in addressing historical injustices surrounding race. I am also not all that interested in religious liberty. I am dedicated to, you know, reproductive rights for women. I am to just shorthand it all, sort of on board with all the tenets of the sexual revolution. And then the other side says, and this is something I wrote about earlier this week, well, I want to protect religious liberty. I want to protect human life from conception to natural death. I want to, you know, I want to advance a particular view, say, for example, of economics or in the world. And also is just, truth be told, not all that interested or indifferent on questions of race. And that those two sides start to match up. And what one of the problems that conservatives have who are confronting this culture, one of the problems that conservatives have is there are millions of young people who have serious questions about race. They have serious questions about racial injustices in the past, and they want to hear from thoughtful voices. And the conservative side of the ledger has too often been dedicated to sort of debunking what we see as the excesses of the left as opposed to putting forward our own positive articulation of what achieving racial equality means in the United States of America today. And what ends up happening is this coalitional politics and this coalitional sorting, and this goes back to your talking about loss, then means that a white population that is concerned about these other issues and these other values looks at another population that is saying, well, to have victory on the values on race that we're seeking, you have to lose everywhere else. It begins to present a political model that is not palatable (laughs) and further exacerbates divisions. And so I think that's one of the core problems we have right now is that we have a political model that's building these coalition politics that is mixing in race with all of these other things and then essentially saying to one part of the America, we're going to raise the cost for you of agreeing with us to such a level that you cannot agree with us anymore, or that you feel that you cannot agree with us anymore. And that presents a fundamental problem, and it's a fundamental division in this country. So I, I feel like I should say here that if we were able to correctly unpack all that's there, we will have solved American politics. <laughs> <laughs> Which I fully expect <laughs> us to do. I mean, why not? Absolutely. The world has been waiting for this podcast. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. 
And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I think the idea of loss is a really important one here, and what you just said helps me understand the way you're framing it. So there is a way of looking at this. If, you, if you're just looking at this question of diversifying America, a browning America, where I think a lot of people and a lot of folks inside what you call this great white culture war say there should not be a loss here. It should not be zero sum. Right. It should not be the case that if we are unlocking more talent from people, if we are getting more creativity out of people, if we're being exposed to more ways of life and ideas and experiences, that that necessarily means somebody's losing. Like that's a very narrow group status way of looking at it, that this should be positive sum. And I would say actually in the history of America, I certainly look at diversification and, and immigration. I'm the son of an immigrant as in general positive sum and, and often the ways in which it's not positive sum are ways in which we inflict upon ourselves. So recognizing some of what I just said is controversial. Something that you just did here, which I think is really useful because it's true, is to note that in addition to that question, there's what the political scientists call conflict escalation. So over the past 50, 60, 70 years, the two parties, and we might even say like the two big impulses in American politics, right, the sort of left impulse and the right, right impulse, you've had this merging of partisanship and ideology and racial identity and geography and religiosity, whereas like the Democratic Party used to be much more diverse in terms of who, how many different kinds of people were in it. Now it's much more um, unified and the same is true for the Republican Party. So the problem is, is if, and, and tell me if I'm, I'm getting some part of what you're saying wrong here, but even if you take the kind of sunnier view of the core conflict here that I do, right, that it can be positive sum, that it doesn't have to be zero sum, even so, because that's now merged into all these other democratic, religious, liberal questions and identities, that if you hold the opposing set of beliefs, the stakes are higher because you'll lose on all those things too. If this rising coalition right. wins on even a thing you may be sympathetic to, well, it's going to work out very badly for you if you're concerned about religious liberty issues or, or abortion rights or a set of things that are not directly implicated in the question of a diversifying America but are very much at the core of this coalition's other priorities. Right, right. Let, let me make it concrete. And and let me be clear. I share with you this uh, notion that we, we don't have sort of this fixed pie that we're divvying up, but instead that, you know, an expanding American population of people from diverse backgrounds brings a lot of benefit to this country. I think also that depending on how the diversification is managed, there can be tensions as we're going through the transitions, as there always have been throughout American history. Uh, but I think, you know, net, net, when, you know, there's there's certainly nothing for any person to fear, in theory, from the diversification of America. And indeed, there's a lot of things that people should like about it. Um, but let, let me make this concrete. And this is going to go to sort of how dysfunctional our politics are right now. Let's touch a really hot button issue. Let's touch a hot button issue of police Wait, shootings. We've not okay? been touching hot button issues until no, now. No, 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 no. We're, we're escalating. <laughs> we're escalating. All right. So let, let's uh, let's make it concrete. So we've been kind of theoretical. So police shootings. So I have written in criticism 
in last year or two of a couple of the more high-profile shootings. For example, of the Philando Castile shooting, just to take one. Uh, I was very critical of the jury verdict there. And there were a couple of kinds of blowback I got from the right on that. Blowback number one, which was the kind of uh, pushback that I don't mind at all and I'm happy to address is, okay, David, you're just wrong on your factual and legal analysis. The jury, you know, it was correct to exonerate the officer here and here's why. And that's that's the conversation. That's a healthy conversation. That's a conversation I want to have. So that's kind of type one. Type two, which I really think is poisonous, is, well, you're weakening, and I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing longer critiques, but it essentially boils down to how dare you break from your side. You're weakening the coalition. You're fracturing the alliance. And when you fracture the alliance, you increase the chances of a victory by the bad guys and loss of things that are you hold very dear. And so, so what ends up happening is it's hard to have this kind of honest, open, transparent conversation about a really tough incident in a much tougher, larger issue without also thinking about coalition politics and also thinking about what's the impact of your speech on the larger coalition. And that strikes me as really negative. And that is, I think, though, a part of the reality that we live in today. And so that's why you'll often see folks who are on the right who will sort of have no enemies to their right. And that will get them in trouble because they'll sometimes end up in situations that they, where they should have drawn lines. And you'll see people who are extremely reluctant on the left to critique you know, language or actions that to those of us on the right just look like beyond the pale is sort of part of this no enemies to my left because there's always such larger stakes in play. And that, I think, is something that's really come home to me in particular since uh, Trump came down the escalator and people on the right were being asked to swallow more and more and more and more for the sake of this coalition politics. And one of the things I think is implicit there, but I do want to call it out, is that certainly there are times when people act in that way. And and I'll say I agree with you. People act in that way all the time when they feel themselves playing coalition politics. They decide not to take on an issue because they just don't want the blowback from their own side. Mm-hmm. But But the other piece of it and the one that I tend to think is actually more powerful – is the raw tendency to view things on your own side with more context, with more generosity, with more understanding to, you know, when one of your, uh, a politician you like says something a little bit too hot to be like, oh, like they just got a little hot under the collar, like, you know, or they didn't mean it like that. You know, there's an interpretive generosity that we can choose to bring to a situation or not. And I think that ends up driving a lot of this. I mean, you know, this is something I wrote about when I wrote about the Serge Young and these associated Twitter fights. Um, It's something you and I, in in some ways, were going back and forth on earlier, that on that side of the divide, I have more context, I have more friends, I maybe have more interpretive generosity. I very much understand how somebody would look at it and, and just read it in a very literal way. A lot of the debate ends up being about who do you extend generosity to? That is a reason the way we are grouping is changing politics. So I had some number of months ago uh, the political scientist Liliana Mason on this podcast, and she's fantastic. And if you've not read her book, Uncivil Agreement, you should. Uh, but 
her big point is that as we have fewer cross-cutting identities, as the Democratic Party, instead of having, you know, a white Southerner who's a union member and goes to church but, you know, is also a liberal and, you know, as you have people who are less cross-pressured between identities that can point them in different directions and make them sympathetic to more kinds of people, as instead you get folks who all their identities point in the same direction, you know, you're highly educated, urbanite, you know, atheist who, you know, you go on and on down that list, who's liberal and, and so on. What her research shows is that you become less generous towards folks on the other side. You become more afraid of them. You become more likely to judge them negatively, that it's actually, in fact, more powerful than the things you believe. Whether or not you have identity overlap with other people, just has a lot of power. And if you don't have that identity overlap, you're going to view them with extreme skepticism because they're an outgroup many times over. And that's just something that is structurally truer about our politics now than it used to be. Within each party, you just had more Democrats had conservatives and the Republicans had liberals and just things were not as well sorted. And as they become more sorted, the ability to say that person over there is an, is an enemy um, and treat them that way has simply increased. Oh, I, I agree with that 100%. Our everyday experience bears this out. When we're dealing with friends and allies, we're more inclined to give them grace. Uh, we're more inclined to read the best uh, intentions in their words. I mean, I think that's absolutely true. Uh, it's amplified by the big sort. It's amplified by the fact that we are now increasingly living uh, in our own enclaves, you know, the number of counties that are the you know landslide counties is as high as it's been in you know a generation uh, where people live ever yeah ever right uh, I, I believe it's higher than it's ever been right right I mean that's a huge issue and then there's this concept that I like to talk about that was um, well articulated in a a Harvard Law Review article from the 1990s by Cass Sunstein this it's called the Law of Group Polarization in in I'm going to paraphrase it, so if uh, Sunstein is listening, I apologize if I'm getting, not getting this exactly right, but I'm going to try to summarize a Law Review article very quickly. But it's essentially that when people of like mind gather, the common expression of their shared point of view tends to be more extreme. So, you know, if you and I both agree completely on a gun control issue, by the end of our podcast, we're going to be more firmly convinced of the rightness of our position. I mean, this is just a, a, a natural human tendency. So you have like-minded people gathering, talking about subjects that they agree upon and growing naturally more polarized and naturally less comprehending as a result of that. And so that's a huge part of it, that, which then, of course— raises the stakes of coalition politics because if you're drifting further and further apart, any sort of crack in that armor, any sort of yielding to the other side means that you've got more to lose. And look, you and I have both been around long enough to know that every election is the most important election of our lifetimes. <laughs> but Yeah, but this one really is. <laughs> this one, this time we mean it, yes. <laughs> that's but, always a joke. Yes, but you know that's part of the foundation for this because it feels like the stakes always raise because particularly in recent years, it does appear that the two sides seem to be getting further apart. And so the costs... And the consequences of dissent from your own side are growing. And that's part of what you saw in the whole, you know, never Trump phenomenon in, in 2016 and, and sort of the lingering remnants of that. I would not expect you to follow the extraordinarily tedious ins and outs of never Trump since 2016. 
But the vitriol uh, has only increased. <laughs> you would think that uh, never Trump, as singular a failure as it was, as a component of the conservative movement, would be treated as an irrelevancy. But it, it is a enduring thorn in, in the side of the larger right and within enduring and continuing irritation in part because of the perception grounded in an awful lot of reality that the two sides are just moving further and further apart and dissent has real costs. You and I could sit here and lament growing tribalization and polarization <laughs> and because we agree get more and more extreme in the way we're framing it. But I want to go back to the great white culture war. Okay, let's do it. And because I think the question that you're raising here and it's a question I had when I read the piece initially. Is is the great white culture war just another word for our politics? Is it just – I mean is the point you're making just that there's a liberal coalition and a conservative coalition? One of the debates within these coalitions is around racial justice and one of these coalitions has some white people and a lot of non-white people and the other coalition is overwhelmingly white people with a small number of non-white people. Or are we looking at something more specific where there's an actual struggle for intragroup dominance or status or something happening between different kinds of white people? Because I think those are two very different worlds. And so I'm curious which one you think we're in. Well, I think they're not quite as different as you might be laying out. Uh, between the two, I think more about the latter for various historical and cultural reasons. I mean, one of the interesting things to me about this divide, uh, this political divide you see in the white community, is how much it breaks down around urban-rural, for example. And and one of the interesting things to me about urban and rural and the differences between urban American life and rural American life, it, they're just different ways of living. You're quite literally, you know, your day-to-day -day existence in rural America is different in many many ways from the day-to-day -day existence in urban America. And I think that what you see is you're, you're talking about an, a very old-school cultural clash, an older cultural clash than the, you know, the quote-unquote culture war that emerged around social issues. And so I think that there is, there are elements of this that are enduring from many, many, many generations ago. You know, I don't know why I'm suddenly blanking, but... Um, Oh, gosh, wrote a great book on the Scotch-Irish role in American history, uh, Democratic presidential candidate. Oh, Jim Webb. Jim Webb, yes, yes. You know, sort of talking about there are these different ethnic strains within American history that have had different influences and have migrated to different parts of the country. So I think that you're talking in many ways about some pretty old divisions that are related to ethnicity within the white community that are related to time, to place, to the day-to-day -day experience you have of living. And so I do think there's an element of this that's very old and, and very strong, even if people aren't, you know, it's not front of mind conscious, but, you know, it gets to certain cultural markers about what it, how you live your life. And I, I wrote this piece in, in Time magazine about the Southern politician and about how the two people who have the biggest, strongest Southern accents in the South are Southern politicians and Southern trial lawyers. And part of it is these Southern politicians are almost like they're guardians of a cultural way of looking at life and what life is like and what this lifestyle is like, and which another whole part of the country looks at as being ridiculous or primitive or silly. 
And so you, it's something that I think is really, really old in American life and American culture. So here's an observation. I'm very curious what you'll say to it. So one of the critiques that a lot of folks on the right make of the left right now is that they want to resolve everything down to identity and to identity right. politics, that they seem to not believe that we're just having discussions that are on the level and instead that all these discussions are informed by people's unique group status and experiences and identifications and that this is no way to do politics. So we have to be able to just have conversations as human beings that operate off of enlightenment values. And then an, an interesting tension with that is that when I listen to the way folks on the right often hear things on the left, they will see even more identity politics, right? So this idea that what's happening here is an intra-white fight that is actually a very old inter-white ethnic debate between sort of rural whites and, 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 and urban whites. I'm not sure it's wrong, actually. And in fact, I, I think it may be right. I think there's clearly some elements of that to the current conflicts and certainly to the current political um, dimensions. I always think it's interesting that, that Donald Trump is Scots Irish. But that said, th there's a way in which there seems to me to be a little bit of friction between the feeling on the right, the left sees too many identity politics, and then also the, the sense that these are all actually white identity politics. <laughs> and uh, does that make sense to you? Yeah, what I'm saying? yeah, yeah. Well, and, and let me be clear. It's not like I'm articulating what is a, a consensus view of fellow travelers on the right. I'm trying to look at a phenomenon and analyze it as best I can. But I do think what you're articulating is that what you're getting at is some of the differences between what I would say the conservative right, the ideological right, and the populist right. And I don't think you can separate the populist right from identity politics. There are identity politics that are laden within the populist right. Identity around, now the populist right would object strongly to saying it's white identity politics, although there are certain elements that would embrace that, the alt-right namely would. <laughs> but... Um, the general mainstream of the populist right would say, no, 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 we are not white identity politics, but it is a brand of identity politics, identity laden around culture, identity around religious identification. My general view is it's really, really hard to avoid the notion that identity politics are in play when you have discrete identity groups voting overwhelmingly for one side or the other. <laughs> so, for example, you know, one of the criticisms that has been often made of the progressive left is that a lot of the power of the Democratic Party is based on feeding an identity politics mindset amongst African-American voters to keep them voting 90%, 80% for Democrats. Well, you also had 81% of white evangelical voters voting for Donald Trump. Now, is that a product of 81% of this particular community studied issues dispassionately and decided that net-net the Republicans were better for them than the Democrats? Or, or is part of this identity group mobilizing? I think we're just kidding ourselves if we say that there wasn't an awful lot of identity group mobilizing that got 81% of white evangelicals to vote for Donald Trump. So- yeah, that identity group mobilizing happens on the populist right. And I think one of the wake-up calls, and and this has been something people have been arguing about on the right for a long time, one of the wake-up calls that ideological conservatives, like I would consider myself one of those, got was that our constituency, ultimately, the people that we thought, oh, you know, we 
in the Obama years, we've made tremendous inroads in building this um, constitutional conservative movement. <laughs> there was a constitutional conservative movement, but there was a lar- uh, also a lot of people who were calling themselves just sort of as in-group signaling that they were against Obama and that the sort of ideological conservatism, that pool of people was smaller than we thought. And in that pool of people who were kind of consciously trying to organize a movement around ideas that were that were self-consciously rejecting identity politics was smaller than we thought. So something that I think is interesting about this is there's a line you'll hear on the left, which is all politics are identity politics. Right. And this is a line I agree with for the most part. Um, but one of the things that I think it can underplay is how a huge amount of politics is actually a contest over what counts as an identity. So, you know, I think sometimes back to the 2004 George W. Bush victory and the way Heartland got used in that, Heartland voters, you know, being Mm -hmm. out of touch with the Heartland, coastal elites. Now, those were clearly identities. Um, They meant something. Uh, I remember that that Howard Dean ad, you know, (laughs) it was an anti-Howard Dean ad, but it was like latte sipping, Volvo driving, (laughs) you know, Whole Foods shopping. I forget what the exact things were, but it was this great, you know, it was a very adroitly done definition of a kind of identity. And we all just have a lot of identities operating simultaneously. And and one of the things that I think is tricky in the debate between the left and the right right now is the right has, it seems to me, and you can tell me if this is wrong, developed a view of identity politics that defines what it is very narrowly and very specifically. It's politics rooted in a usually racialized personal experience. That's how I, I understand a lot of people on the right um, using that. And, and it's also politics, I think, to, to frame it negatively, that is sub-national identity, right? That, that right. people are not operating as an American. They're not operating from a common ground where we can all speak to each other. And one of the things that I think is tricky is that we are so clearly creatures of our group affiliations, and we have so many of them, that I think that the thing that if you want to be optimistic about identity politics, and in, on three and a half days of the week I am, <laughs> you can say is that there are so many different identities that that can be activated in so many different ways. That to say identity politics is pervasive is actually not to say all that much at all. But there is this other way in which um, I think people on the right, for instance, right now, there is a very different kinds of kind of identity politics happening among Christians, white conservative Christians than I've seen before, an identity politics that that feels embattled, that feels under attack, that feels that religious liberties are being taken away, that feels like it might be losing. And, and that is changing its political identity and it's changing how it operates in politics. And that seems to me to be a very classic form of identity politics and in fact a reasonable one. Um, there's an experience being felt there and happening there that does deserve to be heard and looked at. But it doesn't feel to me that the definition the right has given of identity politics has created a lot of space to see identity politics in its positive forms, but also in its organic forms uh, on the right side of the aisle. Right. I mean, you know, we could have the whole podcast on defining identity politics uh, and still not work through all the strands of it. But I think, you know, identity politics, sort of this, this notion of here's a group that you belong to and your group this politician is going to embody and advance the interests of your group. I mean, this is, 
you know, if we're going to go with the broad definition of it, it's just endemic to politics itself. I mean, you know, you have your Nixon silent majority. Well, you know, that's an identity group. I'm the silent majority, uh, which was weighted with a lot of meaning. To an extent, you're absolutely right. I mean, you can't do politics without forming coalitions. Coalitions are formed based on various perceived identities. Identities can be based on race, they can be based on religion, they can be based on ideology. Uh, so even if you're a conservative thinker who's trying to rebel against identity politics, well, that's, somebody could say, well, that's my identity. <laughs> so yeah, there, there are ways in which identity politics is just going to be laden within the enterprise itself. There are a couple of things in play here that I would say conservatives object to about a form of identity politics. And, and one of those is, for example, conservatives strongly object to the enterprise of racial block voting. So to say, if you are African-American, the way to view American politics is fundamentally and primarily through your racial identity, and that those who are not voting for the Democratic Party are in some way harming the interests of their fellow African-American citizens. And that's a framing of identity politics. And if you want to get down to sort of the core of the conservative objection, that would be one way that that's framed. Or that if you are an, uh, a gay or lesbian American, if you are not on board with the Democratic Party and including the sort of the full realm of the various, you know, progressive ideological initiatives, well, then you are betraying your LGBT identity. I mean, that's the kind of thing that I think gets really toxic. And I think on the Christian right, what we began to see happen, and I have been very vocal in, in decrying a lot of the things that I saw happening on the Christian right— was this notion that said, well, if you are not opposing Hillary Clinton to such an extent, and I didn't vote for either one of them, that you're not actively voting for Donald Trump, you are harming the church. You are harming the church. Now, the interesting thing was um, there are an awful lot of black evangelicals, uh, Hispanic evangelicals who didn't see things the same way. <laughs> Um, and did not agree that you were harming the church unless you voted with Donald Trump. But that was sort of, it was a very similar kind of call. And, and the important thing to realize, this call is, in this call, it's not like it comes out of nowhere. So it's not like people are just making stuff up. It's not, pers it's persuasive because it's found, there, there are foundational concepts and ideas behind it. I'll give you a great example on the, the white evangelical world. There was this moment in the Obergefell oral argument when I believe it was Justice Alito asked Obama's Solicitor General about tax exemptions for religious colleges in a post-same-sex marriage world. And the rather than the Solicitor General saying, oh, no, 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 that's not an issue. Uh, religious colleges will be able to continue to impose their rules of sexual morality without the IRS revoking their tax exemption said, in essence, oh, well, that's something we're going to have to look at which rang out like a clarion bell around the white evangelical community. Holy cow, you're talking about yanking tax exemption from the school that my kid goes to? What? So it's not like that there weren't issues that caused people to feel alarmed. 
Um, it's not like there aren't issues that are very important that cause, say, for example, African-Americans to vote 90% or around there for Democrats. Or it's not because there, there aren't issues that cause white evangelicals to vote 81% for Republicans. The long-term problem that we have is the notion where even the idea that you can be African-American or you can be white evangelical and depart and dissent and critique from this becomes in itself problematic. That's when we're beginning to verge into, I think, a, a world of identity politics that is extraordinarily toxic. I, I'm trying to think about this for a minute here because that's interesting. That's a much more narrow critique of identity politics than I typically hear. Um, I was actually – my next question of you was going to be to get your critique of identity politics on the left. <laughs> I have a couple reactions just listening to that because on the one hand, you know, intuitively, I agree that people shouldn't be called – a traitor to their group for supporting a candidate of, of one sort or another. And I think oftentimes they're not. I mean, in all these groups, you have substantial cross-party voting. You mentioned Christian evangelicals voting 81% for Trump, but that means 19% didn't. African-Americans, Hispanics, some of them voted for Trump, uh, you know, and you have these things going in the other way too. On the other hand, there are ways in which the rhetoric operates, and then there are ways in which the rhetoric is quite responsive to the legacies, but also the present legacies and agendas of the two parties. So you have a Republican coalition that putting even aside its direct views about issues that are directly about race, like say the Voting Rights Act, is trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act, which has a disproportionate coverage effect on non-white communities, which is trying to cut and also put a lot of regulations on food stamps. You talked about the LGBT community. I mean, it wasn't very long ago at all that the president of the United States was a Republican trying to put a constitutional amendment in place banning gay marriage. And so I don't know. I mean, on the one hand, I, I take the point you're making that people should not be under so much group pressure that they can't exercise political choice in a socially free sense. But on the other hand, if this is what the conversation about identity politics is on the right, I do think it might be worth some introspection on why these groups feel that way. Why does uh, why does rhetoric like that have force within the group? Because one of the things I always think is interesting about American politics is it's actually a lot less stable than people give it credit for. Hispanics were voting for Republicans in larger numbers under George W. Bush's presidency than they are now. The Democratic Party used to be the party of racism, and it isn't now. These things do change over time. And funnily enough, one of the things I do think is changing is how much whites vote as a bloc. It's a stat I'm always fascinated by, but Donald Trump won every income bracket of white voters, but also Barack Obama, who won you know two majority elections, he lost white voters both times in every state but four. Right. So there, there's this thing where identity politics is seen on the other side, but you know, I mean, we can slice groups a lot of different ways, but in the ways we usually slice them, it doesn't seem to me that the voting behavior is so different on the right, and and again, presumably for somewhat rational group-oriented reasons. Right. Well, you know, I, I wrote this recently where I said, you know, look, if African-Americans are voting 90% Democrat, it's a, not a rational response to that and say, well, that's all their fault. <laughs> that's that's not the rational response. Um, you The rational response is say, oh, okay, why is that? Is there something that we can do to change that? And that's a responsibility, I think, and a, and a serious responsibility on the right is to grapple with that kind of block voting and to say, okay, what is it that we can do to deal with that issue and to present a, 
an attractive and compelling enough message to change that. But what the problem you have right now is, so after the Romney loss, there was a lot of, of soul searching and, and the RNC famously, you know, did its postmortem and said, hey, we need to reach out and to engage in a, a much broader outreach to diversify the party. And a lot of people said, nope, that's wrong. We don't need to do that. We don't need to try that. And then the candidate who's probably least qualified to try <laughs> to reach out, to try to diversify the party in many ways, gets the nomination and goes ahead and wins. And so people say, you know, that RNC blueprint was nuts. And so you've got a big live argument on the right. Do we even need to worry about the fact that 90% of African-Americans vote for one party? And my response to that is, okay, well, let's set aside any given election cycle and say, let's, let's talk about what's healthy and good for our society. And I would say that if we're talking about what's healthy and good for our society, then it should be alarming to Republicans that 90% of African-Americans vote for Democrats. And I think it should be concerning to Democrats that 81% of white evangelicals, including some people who are some of the, you know, look, I'm biased in favor of my own little white evangelical subgroup, including some people who are salt of the earth type folks, when you've got 81% against you, you've got to look and say, what, why is that? But instead what we're doing, it seems to be, is to say, well, if I just get enough of that 81% of the polls and I can win, and the other side says, I get enough of that 90%, then I can win. And for the long-term health of the American Republic, we've got a real problem. But the one other thing that I would say about identity politics, I think there is a difference between sort of saying identity politics is a problem as I defined it, which feels much more manageable than when you combine identity politics with the modern wave of intolerance for a, a dissenting points of view, the online gang tackling, the online sort of mobbing. I think that when you marry identity politics, which is, as you've noted, pretty traditional, and there are excesses there that should be called out and are problematic, but it's kind of tough to avoid identity politics, you know, in the abstract. It's always going to be a part of politics. But it's one thing to have that, which feels like a more manageable problem to me. Uh, but then to have that and add on to it the current call-out culture, the current culture that not only says you're all going to vote in a particular way, but there's going to be this increasingly narrow band of expression <laughs> within the larger group and less tolerance for dissent even within the larger group, even if that larger group is still generally on your same side. That, to me, that's the combination that is much more alarming to me than the existence of identity politics by itself. It's identity politics plus the shaming, mobbing, gang tackling we see. I'm glad you brought in that second point because it helped crystallize something for me, which is that I think we keep talking about this as if we have a politics problem when I think what we have is a communication technologies issue. And here's a way in which I mean that. I don't see any particular reason to believe the way people form, police, connect to identities and even outgroups has changed all that much over time. I'm not sure that our hardware, even our software as human beings is all that different than it was, say, 50 years ago. And I mean, you look back in history, we were killing each other. We've always been killing each other over <laughs> different constructed identities. So, you know, it's Twitter is not the worst thing we've ever been through. 
But something that I do think is interesting is you go back just a little while in Silicon Valley and history, and the big line is that we want to make at Facebook the world more open and connected. And there's an idea across all these groups that if we just have more people talking to each other all the time and we're able to create affinity-based or identity-based groups within them so people are engaged and they're with people they like and they're having conversations, it's going to be great. A more open and connected world is a better world. And one of the things I wonder about when I hear this stuff about call-out culture, I think, well, what are people actually saying? They're talking about Twitter primarily. They're talking about Facebook. They're talking about online communication over politics and identity. And then a little bit they're talking about things that happen on college campuses. But even that is a place where you know, you have folks who are controversial colliding with groups who they know don't like them. And so one of the things I wonder is if the thing that we are feeling is not a change in our politics, so maybe it is going to change our politics, but a change in what we see from outgroups, how present they are in our lives, how much they are are shot into our our feeds. And, you know, for all the discussion of filter bubbles and how you never see anything outside your own um, identity, it actually does not seem to me to be true in that simplified way. What it is is that filter bubbles are very good at launching the most offensive things from outgroups into your feed. <laughs> so what you end up doing a lot of is seeing stuff you're really going to hate from, um, you know, if you're a liberal from the right, if you're on social justice Twitter from the, you know, anti-PC world, if you're from the intellectual dark web from social justice Twitter, like whatever it might be. And so we keep thinking that there's something going on in our politics, but whenever I listen to people really get down to brass tacks on it, the thing that I hear has changed is that they're in these online communication spheres, and in those spheres, they are just, one, seeing stuff that scares them, and then number two, they are getting attacked in ways that scare them. And then to some degree, number three, all this has sort of led in a, in a strange pattern to Donald Trump, who is to some degree at least a creature of, of Twitter and cable news and these highly competitive media spheres. And so I just I, – I wonder if we're just looking at a communications problem that the problem here is that as human beings do form groups, those groups are, are, are quite deeply rooted in them and that when they're colliding with other groups too often, bad things result. I think that's a good insight. I would supplement it by this. I'd say it's like it's a human nature problem exacerbated by a communications problem. It's as yeah. if we took – Twitter is as if we took the high school cafeteria and jammed 100 million people into it <laughs> um, where you've got your, your various groups, all your different in-groups with all your different subcultures uh, rolling their eyes at the different subcultures and sharing with each other the can you believe it stories – from the worst elements of the competing peer group. And, and I think you're hitting on something I think that's really important. It isn't so much that we're in a bubble that says, I'm never exposed to opposing points of view. It's we're in a world that says my predominant exposure to the opposing point of view is so bad as to be not representative of the opposing point of view, as to be, it's essentially I'm, I'm constantly walking around and encountering straw men, or I'm constantly walking around encountering boogeymen. I'll give you a perfect example of how this works on the right. So one of the things that I'm constantly being told as someone who criticizes the president frequently is, I need to wake up and realize we're at war. The other side wants you dead. I'm thinking, okay, well, you know, we haven't met outside of this podcast, but I'm pretty sure you don't want me dead. <laughs> and you, you run. It, it, it's really a pretty, it's a complex plan. I, I'm, I'm sorry <laughs> to tell you. It's, this is stage one, and, you know, there's a very, very subtle <laughs> long term. 
Right. You know, so, I mean, I have a, a ton of friends right and left, and nobody wants anyone dead on either side of that spectrum. But you're being told constantly, this is war. They want you dead. And then I will get onto my Twitter feed, some person, maybe they have a blue check mark, maybe they don't, who offers some sort of homicidal thoughts or fantasies. And they'll say, see, <laughs> see, I'm right. This is the person who's exposing what they really think. And we just see this kind of thing all of the time, and it feeds so much of the machine. And if that's your exposure to the other side, it's one of the things when I go and I talk on college campus, I spend a lot of time talking about polarization. And what I urge people is I say, I want you to single out and find the best expression of the opposing side's point of view. Read the best expression of the opposing side's point of view. Sometimes it might even make you angrier in the sense that it challenges you so much but find the best expression of the opposing side's point of view. But you're, you're exactly right that that is what's happening. And, and my problem is I don't, have, I don't have an answer for that right now. I mean, the only thing, I'm not smart enough to come up with the uh, market alternative to Twitter, but I will just say this. I mean, rarely have I been on a platform that is so widely loathed by its users. Uh, that strikes me that there's a market opportunity there. I don't know what it yeah, is, right. but it strikes me that one exists. Yeah, so it's funny. I get, I think, very reasonable emails sometimes from people who listen to this podcast where I express a lot of conflicted, <laughs> and or maybe not that conflicted views over Twitter. I'm like, why don't you just leave? And it's like, I don't know what to do about the fact that one of our central political communication technologies is, I think, quite bad for the political right. environment. But I also don't think as somebody who does political communication, I can just abandon it. And so I end up just being a kind of boring Twitter user. <laughs> Right, <laughs> But it, it doesn't feel like a good answer to me. But rather than going down my, my Twitter pathways, um, <laughs> l- let me. I want to elicit something else I've, I've seen you write about in Critique here because I think it would be uh, – I'm, I'm curious about it. You've written a lot about the idea of intersectionality right. as a religion on the left and playing a religious role. Could you talk through that idea? Yeah. So people need to have purpose. They want to have purpose. They want to have a transcendent purpose. And one of the things that I think is particularly alluring about intersectionality is that it provides a transcendent purpose to its participants in this sense. And that is, it gives you a larger cause, you know, either fighting for the um, justice for the identity group that you primarily identify with or allying with that identity group as it fights its struggle. It provides sort of, uh, in the church, we talk about that the body of Christ has different parts to it. In other words, you know, you have your teachers, your elders, your deacons, you have different body parts uh, to the body of Christ. It provides you different roles that you play, whether it's ally or, you know, whether it's, you know, the person who's the spokesperson for the particular point of view. It provides a source of authority, experiential authority being at such a premium. Uh, And so what you have is a system of thought and a system of action that provides its participants with an enormous amount of meaning and righteous purpose. And so, therefore, if you're looking at it, you see some of the zeal that you often see on college campuses. For somebody who's grown up in church, somebody who's grown up, uh, you know, uh, a weekly church attender since as long as I can remember, it's all very familiar to me. It's funny seeing some of the campus protest reminds me of being at church camp where there is a religious level to the zeal. Each person sort of knows their part, plays their part, 
and is serving this higher and transcendent purpose. So that's why I've labeled it as, if not, you know, religious, at least quasi-religious in its form. I guess I wonder what work the idea of religion is doing here, because it seems to me that what you're describing here is the way I've always understood causes to operate. I mean, I remember being in college, and when I was in college, I was tangentially involved in the movement to stop um, the massacres happening, the genocide happening in Darfur. And uh, I knew a lot of people in that. I knew a lot of people in the sort of anti-AIDS movements. And those were very definitional causes for them. And I've known socialists and I've known libertarians. And, you know, I've known a lot of people around politics. And I guess I'm one thing I'm trying to understand here is, are you saying that intersectionality is somehow different than these other causes that people devote themselves to and and see purpose in and see justice in and see themselves as part of something bigger? Or are you just saying that intersectionality has become one of these causes? So everyone who's politically aware, engaged, or culturally aware and engaged believes in a cause or advances a cause. But what I'm talking about is what is transcendent versus subordinate. So for example, for me, one of the causes of my life was I volunteered to join the military, and I volunteered to go to Iraq. That was an extraordinarily important cause in my life as I wanted to do that. I felt that I needed to do that. But it was still subordinate to my faith. So what is transcendent and what is subordinate, I think, is something that all of us define, and all of us have something that is transcendent. And then and then we have things that we do as a result of those transcendent values that are subordinate to them, but are still important. And what I see is in quarters of the intersectional left, it strikes me as someone on the outside, admittedly, that what I'm seeing is that the the doctrines and the conduct of intersectional activism have begun to occupy that transcendent position And then the various ways in which that activism manifests itself are the subordinate causes. You know, one thing that I find very, very interesting is, so for example, um, there's, you know, been a widely discussed Pew poll that amongst, in particular, white Democrats, uh, only a minority, only about 32% believe in the God of the Bible. I'm someone who has observed, at least this has been my observation, that a lot of people it's not necessarily that you can group people into here's the distinctly religious and here's the distinctly not religious. It's here's the distinct people who follow a particular religion that is transcendent in their lives. And there here is another group of people for whom something else is transcendent in their lives as opposed to being a Baptist or as opposed to being a Catholic. And I think one of the things that has struck me about the fervor, the language, the modes of conduct about a lot of intersectional activism, it has all of the hallmarks or many of the hallmarks of a kind of transcendent worldview. I'm going to try to translate this into something I've observed and, and see how similar it seems to you. One of the things that I think people on the right react to around the social justice left, and actually something that people on the left react to around it, is something that separates the issues in that space from I think a lot of other issues that are also very important is they're approached in a pretty non-transactional way. So if you think about, say, the politics of healthcare, 
that's my background. I've covered healthcare. I, I care very deeply about people having health insurance um, and, and access to care. And it's something that when people talk about it, it, it sort of exists within a basket of issues that they're willing to make compromises around and to and to talk through and to bargain. It's not very all or nothing. Mm-hmm. Whereas a lot of issues about people's identity and how folks of that identity are treated are. Right. And there's just a lot less space in them. It's very much sort of you're on our side or you're with the enemy. And I understand that on on some level, right? If the way the question has begun to feel is it's a question about your humanity, right? right? About whether or not you are a valued member of the community, about whether or not you are decent. I mean, uh, one of the things that you and I have both written about a little bit, or actually I think I've just talked about on a podcast, but there was this whole thing with Mark Duplass and, and Ben Shapiro. Right. Where Mark Duplass was like, hey, Ben Shapiro's a nice guy. People should follow him if they want to follow a conservative. And there was this big backlash to that. And one of the things I, I noticed in that as I read the coverage of it, because I found the whole the whole thing a little bit puzzling, was that a lot of the anger at Shapiro on the left comes from what he said about transgendered people, that he said it's a mental illness. And that's not like his views on taxes. Like that's a place you can't go. Um, right. That's a place where you're denying people's humanity or certainly I would agree with that, but it's certainly they would say you're denying their humanity. And so there's something in this space. I don't know if I would call it religious. I, I don't think I would. But there is a question about whether or not a cause is sort of grouped in as politics as usual, or it's a more fundamental acceptance or rejection of me as a human being. And I think a lot of the issues that get grouped into intersectionality or social justice, they're there. And I see this also in some religious liberty issues. There are things that are are closer to the core of how people feel respected or not respected, and those they're not willing to bargain with. They end up being um, a, a much more I don't want to use the term black or white here, but but an us or them approach. Right. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the word dehumanizing because I think that that word is a key word in our discourse right now because I think that you're right that there's sort of two categories broadly of speech or debate that we will tolerate and speech or debate that we're going to actively sort of try to drive this person if we don't agree with them out of polite society or they they can't work here or you can't like their tweets or whatever, you know, is the controversy of the day. And it revolves around this word dehumanizing. So, you know, someone will say, I have wide uh, tolerance for disagreement. I have no tolerance for someone dehumanizing me or refusing to acknowledge my humanity or however you want to describe it. And, and what you begin to see, at least, you know, from my side of the spectrum is people are beginning to expand that definition of dehumanization. So, you know, I'll give you a, a good example, going all the way back to the police shootings debate. One of the things that's really difficult about that and has been difficult in the past, particularly on campus, is, you know, someone will say, well, I disagree with your interpretation of the data regarding police shootings. And the response is, well, you're dehumanizing me, or you're saying you're denigrating my right to live. No, 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 I'm not doing that at all. I'm I'm saying that I don't think that your perception that there's an open season on the lives of black men is supported by the data. No, that's dehumanizing. Or it gets much more difficult in the transgender debate, because in the transgender debate, you've got a group of people on one side of the spectrum who say, look, I completely, fully acknowledge your humanity and your worth as a human being created in the image of God. But what I don't agree with is the notion that somebody with 
two X chromosomes and a womb can be a man. That's what I disagree about. And, and let's have that conversation. Let's tell me why you think that I'm wrong. And the person says, well, you've just dehumanized me. And I think that that is something that is very fraught right now. I mean, very fraught. And so that language of dehumanization, how broadly are we going to start to define what is dehumanizing? I mean, in my view, what is dehumanizing is a pretty narrow category, which gives me a pretty broad range to say, hey, look, I, I recognize you're a human being created in the image of God, and you are a person endowed with inalienable rights by your creator, but I disagree with on this very important thing that's very, very important to you. And there are people who shoot right back at me and say, you've just dehumanized me. You don't have a place in this part of our society. You don't have a place in that part of our society. And that's where I think our discourse in some areas, particularly on some of these sexual identity areas, is reaching almost like this sort of irreconcilable gulf. But I do think there, this is a hard thing to say because you never want this to be the the bottom line, but I do think there are places where you're just dealing with values questions that may be irreconcilable. So I actually think the two examples you gave are, are interesting because I, I, I view them as quite different. You know, if we're having a debate over whether the Roland Fryer study about um, shootings is a study that has broad applicability, I, I think people, for the most part, know how to have that debate. And I see this in, in a lot of spaces that I cover, right? In healthcare or taxes, like I think the stakes of the healthcare debate are, are quite dramatic. I think mm-hmm. you're really dealing with life and death. And I, I will defend that view strongly. But over time, politics has figured out how to technocratize that debate. Mm-hmm. So people end up dealing with questions of budget implications and efficacy and provider payment rates. And I mean, there's a lot going on and, and there is a value issue at the heart of it. And I'll sometimes get in trouble for engaging it on that level. But nevertheless, there's a lot of ways for people to have that discussion. So people, I think, know how to have a discussion when you end up getting into this question that you can answer with data and argue over with data and sort of get into an operational discussion. And then the other one you had there, right, which is do you believe and and should society believe and should society be constructed in such a way where uh, somebody with two X chromosomes can be gendered as a man and live as a man? That's a question that's not really answerable with data. That On some level, that's a values question. Right. So I'm I'm actually quite sympathetic to somebody in that position who says, if you say I can't, you really are denying an essential part of my humanity as I experience it. And th- there's not really – like it's not clear what conversation we are to have here because we're not – you know, it's not like, well, look, no, but I have this other study that says that there is something there. You know, I've always thought this is true a little bit in the choice and, and abortion debate. Um, there are some things in politics that – you can split the difference on. And I'm not saying we never try to do that in actually reproductive rights. Obviously, we do. But And then there's some things in politics that are about, you know, am I going to be allowed to pursue what seems to me to be life, liberty, and happiness in the same way you are? And if the answer is just no, if I can't bring you any data, I can't bring you an argument, I can't, I can't do anything because you've just said no, well, then that is more of an assault on my ability to live as a, as a free human. Well, but there's a difference, and this is a, uh, boy, we, we, there is not a third rail we haven't touched. <laughs> <laughs> there, is a, there is a difference, I think, between saying to someone, uh, I would render it unlawful for you to have the gender assignment surgery you want to have 
versus saying, I don't believe that's the right course of action for you. And that's not something that you should do. So when we get down to the brass tacks of these core identity issues, and I think that this is something we're going to have to start to think hard about because I don't think it's inevitable if we can't figure this out that our nation will stay together. And I'm not talking about just the you know transgender issue. I'm talking about sort of if we begin to grow the definition of sort of what is humanizing, what is dehumanizing to such an extent that you say, my expression of a dissenting point of view on issue X is so revolting to me as a human that I cannot work alongside of you. I can't be in your presence. I can't talk to you about these things. Then I think ultimately we're going to have an increasing level of all of the toxic problems we've been talking about. But there's a way through this. And I hate to circle all the way back to something we talked about earlier, but religious liberty it's one of the you know, foundational rights in the Bill of Rights. And because we've grown pretty accustomed in this country to people of different faiths living side by side, it's, that's like routine to us now, that we forget that if you drive down a, you know, there's this road in, in Nashville called Franklin Road that is essentially just like a festival of churches, you know, one church after the other after the other. And, you know, the biggest confrontation you have between these churches is, you know, occasional road rage is the various traffic jams as these churches let out at the same time. When the reality was not long ago, historically speaking, these various denominations that are on the same road used to be burning each other at the stake. And that the issue of a Reformed Presbyterian and a Catholic was seen as Are you going to hell for all eternity, and are you not? And is the very notion that you open your mouth to advocate you my point of view going to send people to hell for all eternity, or is it not, was something that led to extraordinary conflict, and in many parts of the world still does. But here in the United States, we were able to say, look, on something that has, for believers, eternal significance— not just in this life, but eternal significance. We're going to create a society in which we can live together and work together and function together was and is a great achievement. And what I fear is that we're saying about things that have enormous temporal importance that that's too much. We can't go there. We can't live together. We can't work together. I can't be in the same room with you. I can't hear what you're saying. And that, to me, tells me we need to go back to remember how consequential some of these differences were at the founding, which we sometimes tend to ahistorically whitewash sort of into this prism of, well, you know, they were all, you know, land-holding white men, uh, not all that diverse. And in fact, the religious differences in this country were some of the religious differences that led to the wars of religion not that long before. And yet we learned to live together in imperfect ways and halting ways over differences of eternal import. Surely we can do it when the differences are of temporal import. So that that seems both bright and optimistic to me. One of the interesting things about the somewhat more apocalyptic way you started that, about the country being able to continue as, as a country, is that when I look at our story, I see some of the things we are going through now magnified many, many, many times over with much, much bigger stakes among much, much bigger groups. And obviously, it's not always gone well. We had a civil war in this country, right. uh, you know, to get voting rights for African Americans and also for women came with a lot of violence. The effort to 
expand the circle of justice and expand the circle of recognition and expand the the circle of freedom, it feels to me like one of the ongoing stories of America. And, and I do think that there's an interesting thing happening right now where there are contrasting views and claims about who is empowered and thus who is actually being brought into or pushed out of the circle. Something I was thinking about, you, you've used the term religious liberally a lot in this conversation. And, mm -hmm. and for folks who I think are less familiar with the debates, you don't mean, and, and you can correct me if I misdescribe this, but there, there are a lot of conversations right now about where and when folks who practice one religion or another should be allowed to follow the the dictates of their faith, even when that might conflict with certain kinds of non-discriminatory um, laws we have or Obamacare mandates or whatever. And the, there's, a, I think, a really, really deeply felt sense in the Christian community that a secular left is infringing upon their freedoms. And what they want, you know, and, and, and folks will say this, is to just be allowed to practice and be who they are and just not be bothered. And then it's many of these same people who will say, but you can't come into a bathroom with me because I don't believe the gender that you believe you are. And so one of the things that I think is happening quite interestingly and simultaneously is it used to be clear or clearer who had power who it was who was ultimately going to make decisions or be won over such that rights could be granted or, or taken away. And we seem to me to be in a period in American life where a lot of groups feel embattled. Some of them may feel they're rising and some may feel they're falling, but nobody quite feels that they have power enough to control the situation. And that this moment of war of all against all, um, or, or at least insecurity of all against all, it's combustible, but it also, in the long run, might be healthy, um, that, it, that it might be useful for us all to know that, that we are engaged in coalitional politics here and coalitional living. And it's going to be hard to make claims about the freedoms we want if we're not willing to extend those to others, if we're not willing to see that you know there are things others see in us that um, – are offensive and, and if they're going to let those be, we'll have to let them be on the other side too. But I see very few people who take that view consistently. It, it tends to be a feeling that my rights are being infringed upon, but but in the places where you feel that, that's ridiculous. Well, I you know, I think that one of the problems that we have is the what is the definition of my rights? Which sure. is <laughs> which is the 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 core issue, for example, at the heart of like let's take the masterpiece cake shop case. Which rights and whose rights was, you know, those were core foundational conversations to have about that case. You know, I had some optimism and pessimism in there to go back to the pessimism. I mean, I, I have optimism for historical reasons, as you noted, that, you know, we've come through some pretty significant divisions in the past, uh, you know, arguably Though, but for a few different military decisions, the Civil War would have gone a different way, and then the world would look very, very different. So there is grounds for optimism in that we have endured through some really significant differences, violently expressed, more violently expressed than are expressed now. But one of the questions that I often ask is, is there a significant material, a religious cultural, social, political trend that is pulling Americans together more than it's driving us apart. And it's hard for me to see a significant trend in any of those areas that's pulling us together more than it's driving us apart. Now, 
I can look at that and say, well, something will intervene, something will change, you know, and sort of have this historical view that says something always has. Or I can take a view that says, well, you know, I can't assume that. And so what are the things that we can do here and now that can reverse some of those trends? And one of the ones that I think of is a dedication to civil liberties, uh, defending the rights of others that you would like to express yourself. And that's something that I frequently talk about. But that's not a formula. That's To say that doesn't end debates because, you know, again, we're going to get into, you know, the masterpiece cake shop cases, sort of the one of the more hot button cases where you say whose rights, which rights. But as a general matter, for example, if we can agree on sort of the, the Bill of Rights and sort of agree in consistent defense of the Bill of Rights for people on the opposing side, uh, we're going to get somewhere, I think. But I think increasingly even that is degrading right now. But yeah, I mean, we're talking about and we're hitting on some of the most important and contentious issues. And where I look at it, I say, are we really expanding the circle of, of liberty if, for example, we say to a Christian college, you're going to lose your tax exemption if you maintain historical standards of Christian morality? Or if we say to a Christian student group on a college campus that if you have a statement of faith that applies to your leaders, that it includes historical, biblical, sexual practices that you can't, you're not welcome on this campus, that doesn't feel a lot like expanding the circle of liberty to me. You know, and then we've centered around the life issue. A lot of that depends on, you know, you're not talking much about the liberty of the unborn child if you're saying that the unborn child can be killed in the womb. And so we're getting right down to some pretty darn brass tacks disputes about individual liberty and, and indeed even humanity, as we've talked about. And that that's why, you know, and then filter that through Twitter. <laughs> That's the most pessimistic thing you've said. <laughs> well, well, listen, I, I want to thank you for, for talking through all the hot-button issues we could, we could come up with. I appreciate you um, being here to, to discuss this. I think these kinds of conversations are important. Um, and because I, I believe, as much as it pains me, that we won't solve all of them today, um, I'd like to ask you the, the question I, I used to end the podcast, which is and, – and you can take it uh, however you will given the conversation we've had – what are three books that, that you've read that you think the audience listening to this conversation should read? Okay, so the first one is, I don't even know if it's out yet because I've, I've been reading the galley copy, and it, it is called The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. And it's by my good friend, uh, president of the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education, Greg Lukianoff, and his, uh, his friend Jonathan Haidt, NYU, who's founded Heterodox Academy, who is... Uh, doing a lot to try to introduce uh, a greater diversity of ideological points of view to campus. It's a fascinating book that touches on a lot of the things that we uh, talked about today and a lot more, including, you know, the polarization cycle. It's talking about parenting and the role of anxiety in parenting, which is really fascinating. So I think this is a truly valuable, important book. And it's if it's not out now, it's going to be out soon. So that one... And then look, as I tell anybody who wants to know about sort of the uh, great white cultural divides, I know you've read it. I'm sure a lot of your podcast listeners have, but if you haven't read Coming Apart, read that. I mean, it's just incredibly insightful, not just on economics, but culture. By, by Charles Murray. By Charles Murray, yes. On differences in the white community in the United States. Just really fascinating book. And then can I end with something more fun? 
Please. Okay, The Expanse series of sci-fi books. Uh, I got into the show, which Jeff Bezos so graciously saved after the Sci-Fi Channel canceled it after uh, three outstanding seasons. If you like science fiction, and if you particularly like what I would call near-future science fiction, where they haven't sort of magically solved the problem of faster-than-light travel yet, it paints a pretty, what I think is a pretty realistic future picture. Uh, Great books, Great books. So we didn't even get into one of my favorite topics, which is sci-fi and comic book nerdery. But I had to throw that in there. Well, well, we can do we can do sci-fi and comic book nerdery another time. We might even after we've solved all of these, we can <laughs> we can talk through that. <laughs> uh, David French, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you to David French for, for being on the show. Thank you to my producer, Jillian Weinberger. Thank you to all of you for being here. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production, and we will be back next week. <laughs>